On the Record with Gavin Riley. Brought to you by PwC on News Talk. Um, as regards the front pages of the papers today, uh, pictorially, it's pretty much all just Johnny Sexton, uh, obviously celebrating um, at the cake tin after Ireland put away that series win yesterday. Um, on the front pages, as regards stories, um, interesting bit of variety this morning. Uh, we'll start with the Irish Mail on Sunday. Um, we won't vote for Varadkar if Martin stays on, is the threat of some Fianna Fáil uh, backbenchers, apparently. Um, a significant number of Fianna Fáil TDs have warned that they will not vote for Leo Varadkar as Taoiseach in December unless Micheál Martin stands down as leader of the party. The Taoiseach this week vows to lead on after a breakaway group of 30 TDs and senators met to discuss the future of the party while he was in Ukraine. The party rebels who spoke to the Irish Mail on Sunday this weekend have threatened not to vote for Mr Varadkar on December the 15th when the Office of Taoiseach is scheduled to rotate, a move which could collapse the government and trigger a general election. Now, I'll discuss this with my panellists in a couple of minutes. I would have thought that if you're unhappy with the leadership of your party, that triggering a general election under that leader would be the last thing you'd want. But maybe there's some some rationale to it. We'll discuss that in a couple of minutes' time. Um, The front page of the Business Post. The European Commission will this week tell member states to start cutting their gas use immediately and will upgrade the EU's emergency supply status to alert as the likelihood of shortages this winter increases. A new document we published on Wednesday urging member states to save gas for a safe winter. It will also say that demand reduction measures should be introduced immediately and even though Ireland's gas supply comes through Britain, the country will be expected to comply with the plan. The draft uh, document, draft details of which have been seen by the Business Post, advises member states on how to protect industries that are critical to the EU's health, food, safety, environment and security in the event of a shortfall caused by Russia suddenly cutting off supplies. Um, oh, sunny news all round, uh, basically. Uh, also on the front page of the Business Post, National Broadband Ireland's existing private equity investors are set to make returns of more than 25% from the sale of their combined stake to a Spanish investor. The Business Post has learned Asterian Industrial Partners, a Spanish infrastructure investment firm, last week agreed to buy 80% of NBI, which is the company that is set up to deliver the multi-annual, uh, multi-billion euro national broadband plan. Um, that, those private partners were only involved for a couple of years, so getting a 25% turnaround in, in a very short order is, is pretty impressive stuff. Um, and also on the Business Post, Michal Mark and Leo Varadkar set to face pressure to push back on Green Party policies as Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael TDs grow increasingly nervous of the rising popularity of Sinn Féin and independence among rural voters. Backbench TDs in both parties expressing concern about the impact of certain Green policies at a time of high inflation and economic uncertainty, leading to reports that they will call for a review of the programme for government. I uh, wonder how far they'll get with that. Uh, front page of the uh, Sunday Times has a piece by Neil Francis uh, talking about uh, Ireland's historic win against the All Blacks in Wellington yesterday. Uh, it tells us that Penny Mordaunt, who's a favourite to become the next Tory leader, has Irish blood running through her veins with a paternal Irish grandfather and distant cousins living in Gorey. Uh, she's in second place in the Conservative Party leadership with 83 votes uh, from Tory MPs last sun- uh, Thursday, coming second right now only to Rishi Sunak, uh, the former Chancellor. Uh, the main story in the front page of the Times is a opinion poll that they've uh, Commission from Behaviour and Attitudes, uh, which says that the government's decision not to challenge President Higgins' criticism of a housing policy has been vindicated, as the opinion poll finds that four out of five voters are satisfied with the president's performance and says that there is also widespread support for his comments. Michael D. Higgins' approval rating is 30 points higher than for any leader in the Dáil. 30 points higher. 
Then for any leader in the Dáil, according to the Behaviour and Attitudes poll for the Sunday Times, fewer than one in ten, only 9% of voters are dissatisfied with his performance, while 11% offered no opinion. A similar proportion, 80%, said that they agreed with his remarks in a public speech last month that the housing crisis was Ireland's great, great, great failure and a disaster uh, for the country. Um, the Irish public even supports the more controversial remarks made, about the pre- made by the President in his first term. Uh, 35% of people thought that he was right to describe Fidel Castro as a giant among world leaders who sought freedom for all oppressed people. Only 27% of people thought the Irish president was wrong to laud the communist dictator. More people supported his comments about Fidel Castro um, than opposed them. That's that's quite something. Um, we'll finish with the uh, front page of the Sunday Independent. Uh, Mark Tyke tells us that a consortium led by Johnny Ronan is seeking far higher prices than the Dublin City Council is approved uh, to pay for social and affordable homes in a landmark development in Dublin. Uh, the Garda investigation into the murder of Deirdre Jacob identified a person of interest who they suspected could be the convicted rapist Larry Murphy standing outside the post office in Newbridge on the date that she vanished in 1998. Uh, ultimately, however, it has emerged that there is not going to be uh, any new prosecution in that case. Uh, but the front page story in the Sunday Independent uh, tells us that the cost of childcare is to be halved by 2024. Um, as it happens, Hugh O'Connell, political correspondent with the Irish and Sunday Independent, is with us in studio. Uh, Hugh, tell us more. Yeah, so this is um, one of the big things, I think, that the government is going to be uh, championing in the in the budget. And uh, I did an interview with Roderick O'Gorman this week, um, the Minister for Children and Equality, and he's saying that um, the ambition over two budgets will be to effectively uh, halve the cost of people's uh, childcare bill. So you have a situation at the moment where I think the national average is about seven hundred and fifty euro. But for anyone living in Dublin, as all three of us do, mm-hmm. um, it's it's a thousand euro or yes. more. <laughs> um, and if you've a, if a couple of kids, I mean, it can it can reach all sorts of astronomic levels that are more than a, a monthly mortgage repayment or your monthly rent. So I think that this is something that the government wants to try and tackle. We're a long way behind in terms of other European countries when it comes to the kind of state. Uh, state's involvement in childcare. The state really only got involved in childcare about 10, 15 years ago uh, with the uh, the ETCHI scheme. Mm. Um, so, uh, you know, I think that this is something that uh, they hope will have a tangible effect on parents' uh, income uh, when it is rolled out in the budget mm. in September. So he couldn't get into a lot of detail because we are very early in the budgetary cycle. It is only, Ju- it is only July, but... Um, he is saying that over over the course of two budgets, it will be uh, an effect of, of having a parents' childcare bill, um, and I think that's something that yeah. parents will welcome. Well, it should be welcomed um, if it gets achieved. I just sort of wonder whether it is wise or how much how certain a minister can be announcing something that's going to happen over two budgets. Well, that's a fair point. The first yeah, time. that's a fair point. And I mean, he couldn't say, for example, you know, how much of that fifty percent are we going to do in this budget? But you'd think they'd want to front load it, particularly given. Um, you know the, the money that is available in this year's budget, uh, but also the pressure that parents are coming going to come under in the in the autumn. When you think it's not just about kind of go back to school or going back to crash, uh, it is about uh, rising energy bills. Uh, people are going to have the heating on more. They're going to have the lights on more. Uh, the cost of groceries going up even further. Uh, you know, look at the business post and Russia turning off the gas supply mm. to Europe. So all of it is kind of creating a perfect storm of of a very bleak winter ahead for all of us. Um, so you would think that they would want to uh, provide this support to parents as quickly as possible and as and as much of the 50% as possible yeah. in budget 2023. Uh, also joining us in studio this morning
morning is Elaine Lachlan, the Deputy Political Editor of the Irish Examiner. Um, Elaine, I'm looking at the headline on the front page of the Sindo, uh, Cost of Childcare to be Halved by 2024. And it can either be one of those things which is held up in future as being, you know, this this is the, the time at which the burden on parents began to ease. Or it's going to be one of those headlines which is framed and repackaged and presented to Roderick O'Gorman at the next general election because it was one of those things that he promised and then was completely unable to do. Mm-hmm. And I think the Green Party and even Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael now are coming out and saying that childcare is a priority in this budget. I think parents were very disappointed last year when they saw the details of the budget. There was core funding provided for childcare providers um, who, on the basis that they would promise that they would freeze uh, fees but parents perhaps were expecting a bit more so this will be massively welcome it does come after Sinn Féin published their childcare proposals and they would they are promising if they were in government, which they're not, of course, mm. that they would reduce childcare costs by two thirds. So the government parties are now saying they won't go that far. They'll reduce them by half mm. um, over the next two years. Now, I don't want to be overly pessimistic about this. It is no, a like positive. We're like, we, we all the parents of young children. We all want to be optimistic about how much cheaper it's going to get. Like we're, yes. we're all for it. But one note of caution I would have to sound is while this will make uh, childcare affordable, for parents and that's a massively welcome initiative it's only parents who are in the system and as mm. as three parents sitting around the table here of young children we know the hunger games that are involved in trying to get currently a childcare place for for a toddler or baby and that parents often start as soon as they find out that they're expecting a child the first thing they they do is not go looking for a cot or even where they will deliver this child mm. but they're looking down the road a year's time or 18 months time to try and find the childcare place. So in turn if you make childcare more affordable you will have more parents who are saying perhaps now if they have their second child their third child it's actually more financially uh, it makes more financial sense for one parent to stay at home. Yeah, mm. Making childcare more affordable or cheaper perhaps will allow both parents to go back to work so you'll have greater demand on a system that is already struggling to cope with the numbers that are trying to access yeah. it. Yeah. So I think that's another thing that the government needs to think about. I mean, it's a very fair point because, I mean, a lot of parents, I mean, I'm, I'm one of them, for example, because of the shortage of crash places in my, where, where I live, we have a childminder, you know, and so it's, this is the kind of thing that wouldn't necessarily benefit me or other people uh, like me who have mm. childminders. Um and you're right, there is a shortage of, there's an acute shortage of places, in, particularly in, in suburban areas. And I think that that's something that, that, that you know, I, and it's one of the things actually that Roderick O'Gorman said to me during the week. Uh, and one of the reasons why he would have taken issue with the Sinn Féin proposal, because he argues that what they're doing wouldn't actually tackle the issue of funding the sector itself. It would just reduce parents' fees. But actually, like the real challenge now facing the sector is getting more people into it, getting more providers, getting more people working in it. And one of the other things they've done mm. is set a minimum rate of pay of, I think, €13 Euro per hour for a childcare worker starting off. And then you have different bands depending on levels of qualification and experience. Um, so... You know, this is probably something that's going to take several years uh, to work through the system properly and to get to a situation where, you know, I think we'll look back on this and, uh, you know, hopefully we will look back on this in 15, 20 years time. It doesn't matter who's in government or what they've delivered. And we'll look at this period where people were paying second mortgages for childcare and think, how did we ever put up with that? Yeah. Because we shouldn't have. Um, not to, to say that you would ever uh, pursue your own personal circumstances when you're talking to a minister, but uh, as someone who also has one of their two kids with a childminder and not in, in a formal crash, I, 
wondered is there anything up his sleeve for kids who are outside of formalised creches or are, are they still going to be condemned to paying the, the going rate there is there any anything well, I, I up his sleeve the, the, I mean, fo- the subsidy the focus is, is at the moment seems to be on the sector itself and the childcare sector and creches and childcare facilities as opposed to the child child minders um, that does seem to be the, 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 the focus at the moment that's not to say that there wouldn't be policies in that area but I think really what he's what they're trying to tackle is something I think that yeah. affects more parents um, than those who, who use child minders. Yeah. Um, I didn't notice as well in, in his interview as well he's talking about uh, we'll stop talking about childcare after this because there'll be some listeners who are sort of thinking that this is a very insular conversation but he's talking about trying to create a new state body or some yeah, sort of a, a, care, an authority for this whole area. Childcare Ireland this is something that's promised in the programme for governments um, there's proposals early next year I think that he'll bring forward um, and this is really about creating one agency that would oversee the entire sector and would bring the kind of disparate, fragmented elements of childcare that sees Pubble, for example, which administers the ECHI scheme in the Department of Social Protection, bring mm. it all under one agency uh, that would have responsibility for, for setting standards in, in the sector uh, and for administer- and, and running, administering a lot of the, the schemes that are currently up and running. So I think that's something that, um, you know, uh, you know might be of benefit to the to, to the sector. I mean, we've yeah. seen that you know there's, the state has a checkered history when it comes to establishing uh, agencies and their effectiveness. But this might be something which which could work. Yeah, it could work, or at least if it even tries to to simplify some of the bureaucracy that some of the operators have to go through, then maybe it might help to reduce their costs a little bit in time as well. Um, Elaine, there's a lot in today's papers, and and childcare is only one element of it about the cost of living and inflation and what the government is going to do about it. Um, there's even a couple of bits about some of how uh, some bits about how Iraqis members themselves are struggling with uh, inflation because of their own allowances. Um, anything that jumped out for you from the papers this morning? Yeah, and actually that uh, that piece from John Brennan in the Mail on Sunday, I have to point out because it's just gas and infuriating at the same time um, Oireachtas members are complaining that the uh, the stipend or the allowance they get for travelling up and down to the doll is not enough now it's not covering the uh, the amount they're spending on petrol and diesel and they're no longer making a profit on it is oh, what was said so I think there's a the quote that stands out it used to be a great gig a lift down with the lads and then 60 quid a night for a and b so long as the wife didn't find out and you managed to get up and down for the 120 days you were quids in by contrast nowadays we're not turning a penny of profit so this is an allowance we have to remember this is not their salary yeah. they're not meant uh, to get yeah. or earn a profit well, off what should f- be a funny, funny enough that quote is anonymous <laughs> yes. I can't imagine why one, one of my other favourite quotes or lines from the article is that some rural TDs and senators affected by rising fuel prices are even resorting to using public transport Oh, oh can you imagine? <laughs> um, but there, there is a uh, th- this is is somewhat prompted by the, the disclosure a couple of weeks ago that um, at least one Iraq member, in this case uh, Eugene Murphy, the Fianna Fáil senator who's based in Strokestown in Roscommon, uh, couldn't afford a hotel room based on the allowances that he receives, and ended up then trying to commute back to Roscommon. Uh, basically being too tired to make the drive and then sleeping at a, at a forecourt in, in Mullingar somewhere along the way before turning around again and this kind of raised the question as to whether at the very least you should expect legislators who are you know doing national business in Dublin should at least be given enough of an allowance to, to cover a, a hotel night but I can't imagine Hugh that it's a very popular case to be making saying that politicians should get more money than the, the, the allowances that they get on top of 100 grand a year for your TD 
Yeah, it, look, it's it's just not something I think that's going to happen, uh, particularly in the current environment. Um, and I think that you know the, the the travel and accommodation allowances are pretty generous and normally would cover uh, easily cover a senator or a TD's cost. Mm. The problem is is that when there's hotel rooms in Dublin at four hundred euro yeah. a night, if you can get one, yeah, um, it's it's more problematic, I guess. Um, but that's the, the I mean, it's just the nature of the, the cycle yeah. that we're the inflationary cycle that we're in at the moment, and and the demands. Um, outstripping su- supply surprisingly really mm. given the, the, the amount of hotels we've built in Dublin over the last It yeah. does represent a wider years. issue as well you know while we won't have very much sympathy for the TDs and Senators not being able to get a hotel room for 200 quid a night there are others you know I'm thinking of the All-Ireland final that's on yeah. today that mm-hmm. you know people they're already paying significant money on transport and the price of the ticket can they afford 400 quid for a basic hotel mm. uh, which is you know being widely quoted across Dublin yeah. now um, something that they might have been able to get for less than 100 quid um, and even taking a family holiday now for lots of people is in Ireland is no longer affordable because the price mm. has gone up so, mm-hmm. so I, drastically I know that the Kilkenny panel but people who watch the Sunday game on an Ireland final night will usually see that they will do a broadcast from the winner's banquet and that's where they'll interview the, the, the captain and the manager and they'll present the man of the match award and I know I don't know about Limerick, but Kilkenny couldn't find. Uh, they usually stayed in City West, obviously, which is not available in the current circumstances, and they couldn't find an alternative place that could put up the entire panel for the night. So they're just commuting home. They're mm. getting the bus up this morning. They're getting the bus back tonight. They're having their dinner in Langtons on John Street in Kilkenny. And if there is a, a holiday to be had, it will be not so much a you know they're up in Dublin for the night. It will be their homecoming party mm. uh, in Langtons, which, which is just a sign maybe of how and. Kilkenny you're lucky that it's only an hour and a bit up the road but it's a sign of, of, of how it's pressing in all different circumstances uh, somebody is not impressed about the idea of Childcare Ireland they've texted into 53106 to say AFQ another blank and quango uh, here's a novel idea how about we uh, you know, reduce bureaucracy by creating more bureaucracy I don't think it's supposed to be more bureaucracy I think the point is that there's so much bureaucracy spread across multiple people that they're trying to centralise it in one place uh, but it's a reasonable point nonetheless uh, and Peter and Wicklow says and um, he has sent this into a studio uh, with three parents of young kids still not sure why childless folks should subsidise childcare he says if you can't afford them don't have them says Peter and Wicklow <laughs> Uh, don't suspect you're going to get a huge amount of sympathy in this room Peter so we'll just uh, <laughs> leave it at that and, and move on from that um, on a serious note uh, before we do, we do move on um, there's a couple of pieces about um, the the very serious question I mean there's, there's even a piece in, in the Sunday Times under the headline of, of how will we heat our homes this winter and when you see something like that and the idea of the EU ordering member states to start cutting their gas use and stockpiling for a winter um, you know, we might be all sweating a bit about how hot it's going to get outside, but there's good reason to think you that there's we're going to be genuinely worried about cold houses this winter. Yeah, it's like it, I think it's it's one of those things that we just don't know how bad it's going to get. Um, and I think that this is a precautionary uh, measure that's been taken by the EU with a view to just having supply available in in circumstances where Russia might. Um, Cut off supply. I think it's as I think I said earlier, it's forty percent of supply to Europe is it comes comes from Russia. So, uh, in the current situation with the with the war, I think it's it's just something that we you know we really don't know what Putin is going to do. I mean, we didn't think he'd invade Ukraine, yeah, uh, or at least some people didn't, and and he went ahead and did it in February. So I I think when you're dealing with something as uncertain as that, you you have to adopt, be as 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 uh, cautious as possible, and that's probably why. Um, 
the EU is ordering members mm. to, to cut their gas use in, in, in view of that. And I think like we just don't know what, what we're going to be facing. We, just, we don't know how, how cold it's going to get this winter. I mean, you know, it's going to get very hot in the next few days. Um, so it's just very, very uncertain. Uh, Maria has been in touch to say, ah, here, what about people commuting from Carlo, Drogheda and Gorey and then funding it from their after-tax income, which is a very significant point. I'm sure that is something that the government is also going to have to try and look at in the budget. Do bear in mind, though, when we talk about the budget, if the government says it has about a billion euro to spend on tax measures, the current cuts on excise and the lower VAT for household energy, they both expire in a couple of months' time. So even renewing, yeah, so renewing them will, will, will be new spending. So basically, will, the government will have to spend money to... Do basically nothing at all. Two hundred and fifty million, it would cost. Yeah. Um, so on that, Gav, though, they may decide that they're one of the temporary measures, and they may bundle that into the separate pot that they're going to provide mm. for what they call one-off mm. measures to to tackle the mm. cost of living crisis. So they may find yeah. an extra. Uh, we'd hope a billion, but we never know what it'll be um, down the back of the, uh, the sofa <laughs> yeah. between now and then for those measures. Yeah, I remember someone saying a couple of weeks ago in one of the pieces that the, uh, the the legendary fabled sofa at the Department of Finance is now more money than sofa, given the amount of money they've had to <laughs> stash down there in the last couple of years. Um, someone says, you say childcare costs are worse for Dublin-based parents. We are parents of two under fives and our childcare costs are €2,400 per month. A massive struggle with two working parents. The costs are high because one of our children has a disability which requires a qualified carer. And the lack of support for this is scandalous. We live in rural County Sligo, says this person. It is a very fair point yep. and one absolutely worth making that it's not just the idea of, you know, Dublin is dear and therefore it is dear to live there. That if you have a child that has any additional needs and it requires any more specialised care, it really can be um, extraordinarily dear uh, for everyone concerned. I tell you, someone who could use maybe a little bit more help in their cash machine is maybe Senator Eugene Murphy because Jim has been in touch by Twitter to say that the Senator who couldn't find a hotel room within his allowance opted to sleep in his car because he wouldn't pay the difference for a dearer room out of his own pocket. Hashtag stingy. Um, senators maybe there's a, there's a case to be made actually that they ought to be uh, get a, a little bit of an, an insert but um, I did speak to someone who had a role in setting these allowances uh, after all that came out and put to them that maybe there was a case for higher allowances and they said TDs on 100 grand a year already uh, looking for an extra allowance to pay for their hotels nah paid out of your own pocket uh, so that was their stance so I don't think that's going to be getting any higher anytime soon a uh, couple more texts coming in about childcare uh, someone says why are they setting up a childcare quango the greenest thing to do will be to not have children and to reduce our population that's from Alex um, too late for this studio Alex sorry about that uh, we'll, we'll, <laughs> we'll think more about it in the future uh, someone else says, has anyone looked into a loophole in current planning permission, which I thought said that if you're building over a certain number of houses, the builder must provide land for creche facilities. There's been two new estates in Rastrome, it seems to have been built with no foreseeable uh, forecast uh, creche facilities being built. That's a, an interesting one. That's a, um, something that we must look into. Someone else says, Gavin, Dublin is dear and people choose to live there. I'm tired of hearing about the cost of living in Dublin and childcare. People need to get creative and not restrict themselves unless they decide to be there. Um, I'm all for that idea as soon as they move the Houses of Parliament out of Dublin uh, then I will delocate uh, like a light uh, 11.29 and on the record Gavin Riley with you uh, this Sunday morning uh, Hugh O'Connell and Elaine Lockton still with me to discuss what's in the Sunday papers uh, let's go back to the front page of the Sunday Times excuse me the front page of the Mail on Sunday uh, which says that a significant number of Fianna Fáil TDs have warned that they will not vote for Leo Varadkar as Taoiseach in December unless 
Micheál Martin stands down as leader of the party. Now, the way that the rotating Taoiseach operation is supposed to work, Micheál Martin is going to have to resign as Taoiseach on December the 15th, and then the coalition TDs are all expected to vote in favour of Leo Varadkar being elected as Taoiseach in his place. Some of these Fianna Fáil TDs are saying that they're not prepared to do that unless Micheál Martin also stands down as party leader, as well as standing down as Taoiseach. Now, Hugh, we were talking about this during the break. I would have thought that it was a kamikaze mission at best, if you were unhappy with the leadership of your party and the way in which you wanted to voice that was to risk triggering a general election in which he would be your party leader. Yeah, I I think this is probably um, just a bit of brinkmanship on a part of some uh, Fianna Fáil TDs who would like uh, the Taoiseach to set a date for when he will step down as leader of the party in advance of the next general election. I mean, I think there's a there's a broad acceptance now amongst uh, those who are would be kind of classed as dissident Fianna Fáil TDs that Micheál Martin will become Taoiseach in December. But I think they'd like some indication, or tarnished in December, I should say. But they would like some indication as to when he intends to step down from uh, from from the leadership of Fianna Fáil in any in any case mm. to facilitate the election of a new leader who could lead the party into the next election, which will be in late 2024 or or early 2025. I think the prospect of a general election happening um, this side of Christmas or uh, you know early next year is is pretty remote. Um, but I you know I think that what you're seeing now is is the beginnings of a, an attempt within Fianna Fáil to to change the leader of the party uh, in in advance of the next election. And I think that's that's probably something that's going to become more of an issue in sort of 23 and 24 in in the run up to to that election. Mm. And Michael Martin will turn around and say he's been hearing about people trying to get rid of him leader, as leader since he became leader in 2011. Mm. But I do think that like we're at a point now um, where he has been leader for over a decade that it's it's not unreasonable for people in his own party given where the polls are at. And I noticed there's something really interesting that's happened in recent days. Micheál Martin, who for 10 years said he didn't, he, he didn't pay any attention to polls, yes. is now quibbling with the manner in which polls are carried yes. out, yeah. suggesting that Fianna Fáil is uh, up in the in-person polls uh, 20% or more but in the online polls is down, and that you know we should we should pay more heed to the the to the in person polls because that, those are the ones that have Fianna yeah. Fáil at a higher level. Um, and so that's, so, that's something really down. interesting for someone who, who yeah. spent a decade saying I pay no attention yeah. to polls. And now he's quibbling about the methodology of some of them saying he does better yeah. than other ones. Correct, um, Elaine. If if this is the beginning of a groundswell to try and unseat uh, Micheál Martin as party leader, is it one which you think has widespread backing? I think at this point it's probably a very small number within the party who are pushing for this but we do remember if you go back to uh, former Taoiseach now Enda Kenny and the slow burn that it, it was to oust him with the five aside gathering mm. momentum over oh, probably a year and a half phrase I haven't heard for a uh, while yeah. yes before he you know we had uh, I remember going to the, the Fine Gael thinking in the September and he was still very much in place um, the following year and it took a considerable num- amount of time to, to get him to leave office um, but I think it, it's interesting some of the quotes here that they, those quoted uh, nameless sources in the Mail on Sunday are saying that it, it, they are willing to go to the polls but they don't think that they're ac- that's actually going to happen because Micheál Martin would never put this uh, never put his party on the edge he cares too much about Fianna Fáil and the country too so really they're banking on a leader who is notoriously uh, quiet about his intentions and has a very small mm. uh, cohort of people that he speaks to and tr- has trust in yeah. um, so they're trying to read the mind of a man who is very 
private and, and keeps his cards close to his chest, which is probably dangerous in itself. And actually, it's something that that backbenchers complain about often is the fact that that Michal Martin, as Taoiseach and as leader of their party, doesn't share enough mm. uh, with them and with members of the party. So uh, relying on, on Michal Martin's good nature or his love of the country and his love of the party perhaps could be a bit dangerous. Yeah, well, it, it strikes me, though, as, as very high stakes brinkmanship, because if they're basically saying, right, that this government can only survive after you're gone, if you're gone, 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 um, that if that's the only arrow in your quiver. And that once you've played that, if you say, no, you need to go. And Mihal says, well, no, not going. And then you have the vote on December the 15th. And if they all go through the lobbies and they all vote for Leo Varadkar to become Tisha again anyway, then that's it. They sort of run out of ammo. There's no mm-hmm. other means by which they can they can make their case. The yeah. other elephant is in the room is if Mihal Martin does stand aside, who do they have as leader? Um, because if, even if you compare and contrast both the party, both the two main parties in government, Fine Gael, if this, if we were talking about Leo Varadkar this morning, we could point to perhaps certainly two main mm-hmm. contenders in Simon Harris and Helen McEntee who've been fairly open in their ambition and their intentions. But there's also a number of others who you could say... Heather Humphreys. Heather Humphreys, even Pascal Donoghue, yeah. although he, his, yeah. his standing has waned. But that's not to say yeah. he wouldn't, yeah. You look over at Fianna Fáil, Jack Chambers is mentioned in the papers today Perhaps Michael McGrath, Jim O'Callaghan was there at one stage. Dara Cleary was there at one stage. But there's there's no one person who you could see replacing and and even changing the look mm. of Fianna Fáil if they were to take power. Yeah. One thing you have to remember is Michal Martin is the leader of Fianna Fáil. He has been for the last eleven years, and he holds the power. And he holds the power, for example, to appoint ministers to put people on the government payroll. And those people are would be reluctant to give up those positions, uh, it, you know, in circumstances uh, where they would be consigned to the backbenches. So I, I think that's worth remembering in all of this, that, you know, backbenchers and three four backbenchers have been talking about getting rid of Micheál Martin since I started working in Leinster House yeah. nearly 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and they haven't managed it. They haven't even come close to it, you know. Yeah. They haven't even... Uh, you know, created a situation where there's a motion of no confidence tabled in Micheál Martin and the Fianna Fáil Parliamentary mm. Party. So that's all worth remembering. In you fact, know, and Mark McSharry I was say, I was att- just, attempted to, to get something yeah. up and running on that front, didn't succeed and is now outside the party. I was, I was literally only just going to say his name because wasn't there this, this pervading mood that after Mark McSharry had left the Parliamentary Party that mm. actually a lot of the anger just seemed to recede, that yeah. Mark had become no, and, the, the figurehead for that. No, and when he went, there was what, no movement anymore. What's happened is, is it, it's come back a bit because like the polls are not great for Fianna Fáil and there's been no bounce really um, so that, like that has kind of facilitated and you know we're coming up to the, the halfway point of this government so I think that's facilitated a little bit more unease within the party right now um, but at the same time I don't think the general public would thank any uh, Fianna Fáil TD who, who forces a, yeah. a general election Well isn't there the other more practical question Elaine which is that the, the, the TDs who are always most concerned about the party standing in an election are the ones that are in the fringe seats uh, so they're the ones who are worried about a low poll. If the tide is lower, then my boat is going to end up on the rocks and, and that's me done for. So they are the ones then who are the most keen to try and revive the party standing in the polls. They're also surely the ones that have the most to lose by there being a general election, which, which is what brings me back to my first observation, which is that it would be serious kamikaze stuff of these TDs to risk an election, which they themselves will almost certainly be laid off. Mm-hmm. And you see that, I suppose, in government now, the tensions rising uh, between the Greens and both Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael. 
those backbenchers in the two main parties that do see their seats at risk as a result of this surge in support for Sinn Féin and they perhaps see that the green agenda of carbon emissions, we haven't got round to it yet, but those talks that are underway could be seriously damaging for them as especially the rural TDs Mm. um, if they have to go out and go back to their rural bases and say that these targets, perhaps up to 30% for the agriculture sector, are going ahead. Um, Interestingly enough, on that though, Mm. uh, and there is a lot of talk around these talks and discussions um, on on the carbon carbon emissions emissions in the papers today, but the Sunday Business Post asked Sinn Féin what their stance on it is and they have no stance on carbon ah, emissions okay. uh, relating to agriculture. Mm. While they're in favour of getting to that 51% yeah. reduction in carbon emissions across all sectors by 2030, they claim because they're not really in talks, they're not hammering out the deals that are going on for each sector, so, they have no opinion on agriculture. So they haven't got their roadmap then on how you would achieve them in what sector or how much you'd each would have to do. Certainly so, not yeah. in relation to the contentious one in agriculture. Uh, Anthony on Twitter says backbenchers might have the right idea because if this does precipitate a general election then the current dissatisfied former supporters of Fianna Fáil that has the current levels might actually return uh, at the polling stations they have nothing to lose uh, he says um, someone who calls themselves uh, Joe says that as a supporter of Fianna Fáil I state that to bring down a government if the Taoiseach doesn't step down is reckless beyond belief at this time of madness coming from Putin and with inflation raging I am deeply perplexed um, also someone else says Fianna Fáil backbenchers are a bunch of cowards uh, all mouths and no talk <laughs> Just tell, tell us what you really think um, someone else on, on that previous text about child care and uh, new development someone uh, Matt in Lusk says that developers provide land for the childcare services but they're not obliged to run the actual facilities as part of the planning conditions like everything else in our developer run system the land provided in our estate in Lusk in Dublin is still vacant after 19 years of living here like all public spaces play facilities wastewater schools and retail outlets our backwards planning system still tries to depend on retrofitting these things once the new developments are actually completed um, so on the cost of living by the way this is just a flip side view from, from someone else who has a, a perception on, on the cost of living. Um, the NTA and the Department of Transport are trying to push bus routes back to start earlier, four o'clock in the morning, and to run later. This is a, in a means of obviously trying to encourage people to take public transport where they can. Um, but Alan texts in and says that Alan is a Dublin bus driver and he has no option but to use his car to get to work. He can't use the public transport because he drives it. Uh, the, the fuel is crippling his household and he needs a tax credit for fuel in order to be able to make it to his job to help everyone else cut down on their carbon emissions, which is a, an interesting point. Um, just on the topic that you, uh, that Elaine touched on there for a moment, uh, Hugh, about this idea of does there maybe need to be a revision of some of the programme for government. Uh, it is a case that is made in John Lee's piece uh, by some TDs. Uh, Limerick, Limerick TD Willie O'Dea tells the Irish Independent in your own paper um, that the deal underpinning the coalition has been overtaken by spiralling prices that are keeping the government from preventing its own... Pr- uh, keeping its own promises. Um, other TDs like Jim O'Callaghan and John LaHart are also in favour of revising it. It's mentioned in the Business Post that there might be a, a push to revise some of the um, the commitments in the programme for government because of the rise of Sinn Féin. Um, you have a piece on t- page two of today's Sunday Independent about whether it's going to happen or not. Yeah, um, so off the back of Willie O'Dea and, and some others in Fianna Fáil, I think John LaHart and Jim McCallan saying there should be a review, um, Regina Doherty, the former Social Protection Minister and the Government Leader in the Shannons, and Charlie Flanagan, 
the former Foreign Affairs and Justice Minister uh, have both said that, yeah, we would support a review mm. taking place. But the Taoiseach and Tornish, the spokespersons for both issues, almost identical statements yesterday, uh, ruling out any review at this point. Ah. Um, so I think that puts, the, puts, puts an end mm. to that. I mean, the programme for government is for five years. And as I note in that piece today, uh, the last time a programme for government, I think, was renegotiated was in 2009 mm. when the Greens demanded it as the country went down the swanee. Yeah. Um, which kind of again seems reasonable in hindsight because it was right. Well, the economic circumstances. Well, the economic changed. circumstances have changed. Yeah. I, you, you could make a very coherent argument for saying the economic circumstances have changed now, yeah. uh, given the the war, given uh, you know COVID nineteen is is uh, is I don't want to say no more, but certainly the this kind of all of the state supports yes. have, have been uh, ended at this stage in, in terms of the pandemic. So. Um, there is an argument to be made that, that that the economic circumstances have changed such that would would require a, a renegotiation, but it doesn't seem any of the three parties involved in the coalition are demanding one. So, yeah. with that being the case, it seems unlikely it'll uh, happen. Yeah, I, I noticed that a spokesperson for the Green Party leader, Eamon Ryan, declined to comment on the matter. I am old enough in that I was around two years ago to remember when his party's deputy leader, Catherine Martin, said that this should already be built in. That when the that's right when the job yeah. of Taoiseach was to be she rotated, did. that it should I, be reviewed I, then anyway. I believe she also suggested that there should be bi-monthly reviews of of the programme for government I'm, I'm not sure we've heard anything about that since Norm says it would be nonsense who would take over from Fianna Fáil this is all about the founding fathers who left a trail of destruction scandal after scandal tribunals Ryan Report Celtic Tiger and more to come uh, again Norm thank you for uh, you know sitting on the fence tell us how you really feel uh, Liam in Limerick says I'm not a supporter of Fianna Fáil Fine Gael or Sinn Féin and I would welcome an election uh, by the way you do realise that not all people who live beyond Newlands Cross are involved in agriculture uh, says Liam in Limerick um, <laughs> yes, we, well, yes we do we do appreciate that yes indeed I think all, all three of us are from outside the M50 natively um, what has Michal Martin done wrong exactly he's up against the most populist party in the history of the state who are making ridiculous promises that cannot all possibly be enacted says Michael and Fingless well, that is a, a view but of course uh, Sinn Féin would say otherwise uh, we're going to take a quick break there's lots more to discuss in the papers with Hugh and Lane we're back after this uh, it's just clear that a lot of Fianna Fáil can't stomach handing over the top job to Fine Gael, uh, says one texter which might have a, an element of truth to it I remember talking to a Fianna Fáil backbencher who had some concerns about the draft programme for government and I said well you know what if you you lose they were ag- agitating against a vote and I said you know what if you lose what if what if you ratified the deal and he said fair enough that's the deal I will go in and I will vote for Fianna Fáil or for Michal Martin as Taoiseach and I'll appoint Fianna Gael ministers and I said and in two and a half years time then what do you do will you vote for Leo Varadkar to become Taoiseach and they said we will cross that bridge when we come to it <laughs> so they're not totally uh, comfortable in, in their own skins in that one uh, someone else says what about a cabinet reshuffle uh, which is a point which is an open question uh, when there has to be a new Taoiseach because Michal Martin will have to take over some government departments as Taunashtan and that's going to re- involve a certain number of other people having to move sideways. Anyway, as I say, 11.46, Gavin Riley with you on the record, Elaine Lachlan and Hugh O'Connell still with me in studio. Um, a good amount in uh, this week's papers, not as much, I think, as I might have expected given that it was the big story towards the second half of the week, but nonetheless, quite an amount written about um, a refugee housing crisis and some of the short-term solutions that are going to be uh, rolled out for that. Um, Hugh, anything that caught your eye among the coverage today? Yeah, Mark Tighe has a story, uh, my colleague in the Sunday Independence, um, about old Garda stations. Obviously, there was nearly 100, I think, um, closed a decade ago, or over a decade ago now at this stage, and, and he's suggesting that some of them could be, uh, rather than being sold off by the state, that they could be used as, as uh, places that could accommodate refugees, and obviously there'd be a significant amount of upgrading needed to be done. Um, but I think really it's it's just points to the, the, the extent of the crisis now that um, these are the kind of facilities that are going to have to be used to to uh, put put a roof over people's heads, and I think it's something that um, certainly caught us by surprise this week that this that, that this uh, acute 
problem that you know meant that some people had to stay at Dublin airports on 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 when uh, throughout this week. Um, but I think it's a, it's a consequence of a, of a number of things, obviously, which I think the government have explained. There's obviously there's more people coming from Ukraine now. Mm-hmm. It did kind of tail off in in April a little bit, but but has been steadily rising again. But also, you know, the the Rwanda policy of the UK government, which I don't think has actually resulted in anyone being deported from the UK to Rwanda. Yeah. But such has been the level of publicity around it that obviously people um, seeking asylum. Uh, are less likely to go to the UK now because it, it mm. would be a, a more inhospitable place in Ireland. And also the fact that we completely stopped deportations during um, COVID-19 yeah. for good reason. Um, and that's obviously something now that hasn't been restarted, even though the pandemic has subsided. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I think there's going to be more deportations in the months ahead. Well, you, again, you, you, in, in your interview with Roderick O'Gorman, there's another piece on page four today of the Sunday Independent. And it's observed that actually this crisis may make it very, very difficult then to actually meet the government's yeah. own deadline of, of scrapping direct provision That's in the right. next two years. Because the, there's a whole unit set up in the Department of Children and Equality to... Um, to uh, deliver this white paper on the abolition of direct provision by the end of 2024 and all of that unit was seconded into tackling the um, or dealing with the refugee crisis for three months earlier this year uh, so that has slowed all of the work and mm. what Roderick O'Gorman was saying is that in September, October we'll have a new timeline but it was pretty clear from the way he uh, was talking to me that this mm. ambition is probably going to have to be kicked out by mm. well, a couple of years. Of course it, it would have to be Elaine because if you think about the the Taoiseach's own disclosure on Thursday morning that City West which was block booked and intended to be used solely for people fleeing Ukraine is now 70% occupied by other people coming to the country and seeking asylum and that's where they've been housed for want of anywhere else. So far from dismantling direct provision, we've had obviously the centre in Kinnegad which has been somewhat controversial in some quarters and now City West being used as de facto direct provision it's going to be mm-hmm. very difficult to, to ever then start dismantling that if, if the size is only getting bigger. Yeah, and we did speak about an overhaul of the programme for government or, or looking at the programme for government with fresh eyes again uh, earlier on. And I think this is perhaps one of the things in the programme for government that unfortunately won't be delivered on now. Um, it was when that white paper was published last year, it was welcomed by NGOs, by those representing uh migrants and those coming here as really ambitious and forward thinking and a step in the right direction and I think Roderick was really uh, Roderick O'Gorman the Minister was very committed to implementing not just the abolition of direct provision but a, a host of measures even about streamlining or uh, or speeding up the process as well for seeking asylum mm. and that all could disintegrate really um, we do have around I think it's about 7,000 people who've arrived here from outside the Ukraine seeking asylum mm. already this year that's double what what you would expect an entire year and we're yeah, only we're halfway through it, through it. Mm. Um, so there is severe pressure on the system um, and as Hugh said resources mm. have been diverted away from the progress on, on, on achieving what is in that white paper. Um, all of which begs the question, you were just making this observation during the ad break as to why we all seem to have been so taken by surprise when this news emerged on Wednesday night that City West and all the other uh, designated accommodation centres um, were all full. Because mm-hmm. uh, Roderick O'Gorman himself has actually been on the record as saying that well, the number of non-Ukrainian people coming looking for international protection, uh, which is a legal right in certain circumstances um, had been increasing anyway and we knew that we were to expect up to 100,000 people from Ukraine so far we've only got about 40,000 but already we're full that we shouldn't have been taken by surprise at all or certainly that the government maybe ought to have better communicated that this was coming. 
Mm-hmm. And this is all about messaging. And I think it's something maybe that the Green Party struggles with is getting their message out, not just on this issue, but other issues as well. And there were indications a number of weeks back when we had uh, those seeking refuge sleeping on the floor of the hotel, the Red Cow Hotel. Mm-hmm. So we knew that the system was coming under pressure then. Uh, and also it's a it's a good while ago now since the government signed off on using Gormanstown as temporary tented accommodation. Thankfully, up until now, that wasn't needed. It will be open from tomorrow and people will start uh, going into that very temporary accommodation. Um, so it, it just was surprising for even journalists who are covering this that on Wednesday night, suddenly we became aware when people were already on blow up beds in that old uh, part of Dublin Airport, staying the night there, that this we had effectively no warning about it. You know, sometimes it's just about the government coming out and saying we are aware that the situation is 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 getting more intense, mm. and we are looking at all alternatives. We're trying our best. We know it's going to happen, and it gives the impression that okay, while it's a slight runaway train, they mm. are doing their best to get it under control, as opposed to being told when the situation is already out of control and people are are sleeping in that old terminal in Dublin airport yeah. that the, the general public has been notified after the after yeah, the event that, that even if they did see it coming at least it would have projected an area of, an, an aura of calm or control if they'd uh, let us know that they were already saw it coming or that they were on top of it um, Hugh there, there's also an interesting piece by, by Maeve Sheehan today uh, it's just above your own piece in mm. the uh, Irish Independent about um, if the government saw this coming and, and maybe the suggestion is that they did because they knew that there was more true to come from Ukraine and they knew that there were more coming from places other than Ukraine um, that we are not getting through the database of pledged properties to the Red Cross nearly as quickly as we ought to be and and there's some reasons put forward for why that is yeah um, I mean this this is uh something obviously which you know we were all sort of uh, taken aback and and sort of encouraged by the fact that so many people had had pledged their accommodation but actually when you drill down into these offers many of them didn't actually materialize for a variety of reasons in some instances it seems as if families took in refugees kind of outside of the red cross process because maybe that you know friends of friends or yeah. or whatever mm. uh, you know some sort of uh, ad hoc arrangements um, but actually um you know the properties that were identified um the 9 were cleared as suitable by the Red Cross. 6,500 were deemed as uh, as suitable to accommodate children. Um, But then ultimately only 2,100 households were cleared by Garda vetting and that equates to about 1,000 out of the 6,500 pledged homes originally available. Um, So the Garda vetting process seems to have actually um, put a lot of homes out of... of, Mm. um, out of contention. Now, so, is it made clear whether that is a delay in vetting, or is it a case that when they do try to contact the owners, that then the owners are somehow yeah, well, tardy and getting back? I think it's 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 both of those reasons. I think, but I think you know that there has been delays in guard vetting. But I think also is the fact that like once. I think in some instances when a homeowner is contacted and, and they say, well, we're going to have to put you through a guard vetting process, the homeowner might want to reconsider for whatever yeah. reason. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that that's something that, um, you know, look, it, it is presenting more of a challenge now for the state because the, the, the numbers of accommodation that were pledged at the start of this crisis aren't actually materialising now. Yeah. On the flip side of that, though, in the wake of the reports that, you know, women and children were sleeping effectively on the floor of Dublin Airport, a number of people came on radio stations 
venting frustration that they had pledged accommodation as far mm. back as March mm. and they were still waiting to be contacted. They were you know so clearly crying been delayed, out like, for yeah. someone to contact them so they could provide their accommodation yeah. and that hasn't happened so we do know that the Red Cross system is operating at a slower pace than had been hoped yeah. uh, Elaine Lockton, Deputy Political Editor of the Irish Examiner and Hugh O'Connell Political Correspondent of the Irish and Sunday Independent thank you very much I'm wrapping up a little bit early because I do want to finish with uh, one little piece from the Atticus piece in today's um, Sunday Times about the uh, the recently departed uh, Fianna Fáil TD Bobby Aylward um, when a group of rural Fianna Fáil TDs challenged new drink driving limits in 2009 the Sunday Times challenged them to prove to they could drive after a few points by doing tests in a simulator. All declined the offer apart from Bobby Aylward, a Fianna Fáil TD for Carlo Kilkenny. Aylward accompanied us to the Balliochlea School of Motoring in Talla, which performed test drives sober and 40 minutes later after quaffing two swift pints of Guinness. Um, a simulator, we should stress. Unfortunately for this newspaper, which was hoping to show the rebel TDs the error of their ways, Aylward performed better in every category, <laughs> uh, improving his reaction times and stopping distance at 30, 67 and 98 kilometres per hour. Thomas Papp, director of the driving school, said the results were scary and hard to explain. Aylward, always a good sport, said at the time he was against drink drive but subscribe to the two will do policy the one the two the popular former TD died on Thursday after long illness Nivai Alehid and Arish On the Record with Gavin Riley brought to you by PwC Sunday morning at 11 on News Talk